Welcome to Rewired, a podcast that brings to you cutting-edge ideas on how to create a just economy and society. We'll have conversations with policymakers and activists at the forefront of efforts to transform our society. I am Duma Bubule, an economist and financial journalist. And I'm Isabel Fry, a lawyer and social justice activist. Together, we want to provide you with information and insights so that you can have meaningful debates in your spaces and communities. Rewired Episode 5. Can South Africa reimagine economic policy after 26 years of democracy? During this episode, we interview Geraldine fraser Molikerti, who was a Minister of Cabinet between 1996 and 2008. We will explore social and macroeconomic policy choices the government made during the first 15 years of democracy, including the Growth, Employment and Redistribution Programme, GEAR. We'll look at the expansion of social welfare grants and the restructuring of the public service. That was a seemingly contradictory time. The ANC government rolled out social grants to millions of black children who had previously been denied the right to any social security. At the same time, Governments accused of having decimated the public service and state capacity. However, expenditure on grants at 3.4% of GDP in 2020 was not much higher than the 3% of GDP that was spent in 1993. Geraldine was Deputy Chairperson of the South African Communist Party between 1998 and 2002. Jeremy Cronin, a member of the SACP, recently said in a Daily Maverick article that most public discussion on corruption focuses on morality the need to strengthen the weakened criminal justice system, and the need for ethical leadership. He says these are necessary measures, but are they sufficient responses? What institutional, programmatic, and embedded strategic assumptions are also at play? He brings attention to how a tenderized state has opened the door to corruptions. A key pillar of neoliberalism, he says, was the repurposing of the state to roll back public provision of welfare, to privatize publicly owned utilities, and to generally act as an aggressive handmaiden to the interests of the globalized financial sector. The conclusion is that we will not root out corruption until we think more profoundly about the systemic features of our society and move beyond ethical pleading. As a long-serving Minister of Public Service and Administration, we will ask Geraldine, what role did austerity and the restructuring of the public sector play in the weakening of state capacity and the rise of corruption. Welcome, Geraldine. You were born in Cape Town and studied briefly at the University of the Western Cape teaching before leaving the country in 1980. In exile, you became a member of the ANC, the SACP and MK. You trained in Angola, the USSR, the former Soviet Union. You later became part of the SACP's regional leadership in Harare. You returned to South Africa in 1990 and worked to strengthen the party with Joe Slover and Chris Harney until Chris's merciless assassination. In 1995, you became Deputy Minister of Welfare, and in 1996, you became Minister of the same department. Thinking back on that early part, what would you say to our audience really prompted and provoked you to go into exile at such a young age? It's good to be here and good to be with both of you this morning. Thinking back, uh, what prompted me to go? I think firstly, one should raise the fact that 
you know, part of my involvement goes back to my background, both family, um, trade unionist grandmother, you know, mother and uncle who handed out Spark, New Age and the various pamphlets as part of the Christmas stamps that were circulated to ensure income to both the union and the party, even though I think they were unaware that it was for the Communist Party of South Africa at that point in time, as many people were. Then aunt going into self-imposed exile to the Netherlands, my father hailing from the Eastern Cape and that kind of background. And then, of course, Livingston High School comes into place. I think during that time, myself and some school friends were actually in a cell that was formed where we were quite actively involved in everything from pamphleteering to beyond that. I'm sort of looking back at that because I'm 60 this year and was going through various recollections. So in 1980, I went to Zimbabwe in June, meeting my aunt who had been in exile since 1967. And it was the first meeting and I was together. There were five of us at that point in time. And, uh, you know, that those were heady days for the then uh, Zimbabwe. And, you know, just looking at what was happening, I realized that being part of what became the United Women's Congress, being part of mass structures inside the country wasn't enough. It wasn't going to deal with the challenge we had to work towards a democracy in South Africa. And I realized that missing pillar that was part of the pillars of the ANC, armed struggle was necessary. And it wasn't just this little unit that we had formed. And it was both, there were two cells that I was involved in. One was a reading circle. So read uh, the German ideology that we got from, uh, there was this bookshop in observatory in Cape Town where you uh, got the then illegal literature that was behind the counter. It wasn't sort of, and I think it was open books, if I'm not mistaken. I can't even remember the name, but open books. So I was in one reading cell. But I was also in this different cell that was a group of 10 of us. And I think much as we may have aligned ourselves with the ANC, it wasn't a direct link because you had the sort of cells that were separate. So leaving in 1980 was a combination of activism, both from a family as well as a high school, university and all as well as just exposure to what happened in Zimbabwe. So, of course, I left the country. It was with myself and one other person and joined more formally the ANC in Zimbabwe because the contact that we had to meet in Botswana wasn't there. So we just continued on the train, you know, sort of went up to Arari because there were some contacts there. And, uh, yeah, I worked very closely with uh, Joe Tabi, who was the first uh, ANC chief representative to Zimbabwe at that point in time. He, together with uh, our former president, Tabo Mbeki, were instrumental under the leadership of Oliver Tambo to build relationships with the then government. But uh, yeah, this is where I was in formal structures, uh, 
went for military training. So just in terms of sequencing, so I was first a member of the ANC, then then was trained and became a member of Umkonto Wesizwe, which was in 1981 in MK itself, because I went for training in Angola and then on to the Soviet Union, as you indicated. Those of us, we were in a group of 20 And in the group of 20, there was a specialized group that stayed behind a group of 10. And I was in that group of 10. We were only two women in the 20 and two women in the 10, which uh, was quite interesting. So we actually trained as officers of the Red, did equivalent training as some of the officers of the Red Army at that point in time. But it was very specialized training. Um, Returned back to Angola, eventually back to Harare. And it was my recruitment into the SACP was not the way you join the SACP these days. So you get recruited. You go through a process of probation. So you, you could be recruited in and not be accepted into the party. And the party was considered at that point in time the most advanced structure within the alliance and in the liberation movement. And it was an immense honor to have been approached for uh, recruitment into the party. And involvement in the party was underground. So within the underground ANC, you were underground within party structures, Duma. So that was quite uh, something. So what uh, made me go, I think, was a commitment to social and economic justice, equality of all people. And this was something that's, that's been, I think, really part of my life, of our life, you know, yeah. I was just wondering, on a lighter note, did you attend the independence celebrations and when Bob Marley came to Zimbabwe? I wasn't at the independence celebrations. This was a bit later, but I must tell you, at the time we were there, sort of June and thereafter, I mean, Bob Marley and just reggae was the thing in Zimbabwe. And I think everybody remembers the big concerts and all. And this is what was really great because it allowed us to have very strong links with the internal structure. So everybody came up either for a concert or something else. And I mean, what happened under the guise of concerts were amazing. Training of people internally, debriefing of people the building and consolidating of internal structures. And much as someone like Mzala was quite critical about boiling the rice outside the pot and the fact that you couldn't do that, you know, that there was a need to embed uh, externally trained cadres to a large extent internally. There was quite an interesting link. And, and yes, so Bob Molly was very much part of the landscape of Zimbabwe, so to speak. Geraldine, that just sounds so evocative of freedom in a way, even yeah. though it was at the height of oppression. Just to take you on a slightly different track, when we look now at the kinds of ANC policies, I mentioned gear in my introduction of you. In the days pre-1994, what was the thinking within the ANC and also the alliance structures you mentioned, the SACP, about uh, social and economic policy? I think specifically the question of redistribution 
and facing levels of unemployment that we do now, was there anticipation of how to rebuild the economy and how to rebuild it in a socialized, if not socialist, manner? So two things. I mean, what is very clear is the ANC was never a socialist movement or organization. It's the party that was socialist and, of course, sucked to itself, had, from a worker point of view, a very strong sort of socialized and socialist outlook, so to speak, as part of the alliance. But the foundation document that's known to everyone is the Freedom Charter. And I think, if I just think back, besides uh, what we did internally before I left the country, even when I was in the camps in Angola, so the National Commissar would come and have discussions with us in the camps and talk about the Freedom Charter and how a member of the People's Army, Umkonto Wesizwe, that when you were involved in an internal mission, because I was in one of the forward camps, so to speak, you know, that re-infiltrated people directly back into the country and and some of the people who are considered great heroes of ours were there. I mean, there were some of them who sadly uh, got killed in uh, various operations. But he used to talk to us and say, when you're carrying out a mission and if you'd pull the trigger, you think of the Freedom Charter. South Africa belongs to all who live in it and no government could justly claim authority unless it's based on the will of the people and the various clauses of the Charter. And it was quite the interesting thing, you know. We debated this as well in the political groups and there's a lot to be said about it. So there was uh, and is the Freedom Charter. And yes, the Freedom Charter went, I think, a bit beyond a very narrow nationalistic uh, liberation movement. And this is due to the way in which the Freedom Charter was actually put together because it drew on people from all parts of the country. Towards the late 80s, of course, there was the preparation for what a post-apartheid South Africa would look like in a more deliberate sense. And this was when the PASA project was set up in uh, Zimbabwe itself. I mean, names that come to mind are the likes of Mwiletsi Mbeki and others. This is also when the ANC very deliberately set up a department of manpower. You know, I mean, forgive the uh, <laughs> sexist uh, uh, term, but it also started developing documents, policy documents that resulted in the ready-to-govern document that was uh, discussed in the 1990 conference of the ANC policy conference. And, of course, this led to the development of the Reconstruction and Development Program. So there was a deliberateness on what had to be done. There was a consciousness of the level of transformation. But then, of course, the reality of governance comes into place when you come into government and you need to take decisions and sometimes decisions that may not fully to the letter follow the policies that you had as a liberation movement. And I think we were deeply conscious of this. So if you permit me, I actually want to quote uh, Deng on this one. 
and he was referring to China. And it was around almost the same time when we were grappling with these issues. I mean, look, he played a critical role in the late 80s up to uh, 97 when he passed on. But, you know, he said a fundamental contradiction does not exist between socialism and a market economy. And I think that there were certain difficult choices that we had to make. So what we did was we almost, and this is my words, we self-imposed a structural adjustment program in South Africa because of what we saw the debt to GDP to be. And this was because we didn't want our debt service cost to really crowd out the social programs that we wanted to put in place. So we made some difficult choices. And I think it's very easy with hindsight to look back and say, well, could have done it differently. And I'll come back to that. And that's why I want to, I think there's another quote by Deng, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, where he says, you walk in the river on your own feet, you know, feeling the stones beneath it. And I think this was a little bit about that time, because when you look at it, and I know, Duma, you also reflect on it, much as we were in junk status when we came into government at that point in time, if you look at where we are now, we're back there. But there are a number of factors. I just want to ask a question because you're bringing me back as I came back to South Africa and I was a young, naive person. I met and I went and interviewed as a journalist, Vela Pillay, um, mm-hmm. who was one of the greatest economists in the post-apartheid period, and Ben Turok in Bramfontein. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you may have met my uncle there. He passed away around that time, uh, James Ravel. I can't remember. You yeah, can't remember. I can't but remember. he was part of that outfit at that time. He sadly passed away soon thereafter. Yeah. So I became obsessed with, um, I met him many times, Vera Pillan, who tell me a lot of stories. He had worked in the Chinese Central Bank. He got so mm. much experience as an economist at the highest level. And they had presented an alternative vision of what we could do. It was called the Macroeconomic Research Group. Mm. And they called for, a, I would say, a Keynesian policy to grow the economy. And then there was this one that you call the gear. Now, when I look at it at the time as a journalist, I can honestly say that I do not remember any news conference where we ever discuss the debt issue. We did not see it as a problem because the numbers on the table did not show us a debt problem. And I remember at the time, Greta Stein at Business Day, she's one of the greatest economics journalists. She passed away some years ago. She actually wrote that what Merg is proposing, it is realistic and it should be done. So I'm just understanding what are the debates between those two factions? You know, I don't like the word factions, by (laughs) the way. Neither do I. No, in fact, we should ban the word factions. I think we should ban it. We should ban the word factions. Geraldine's eyes are twinkling and she's smiling. (laughs) It triggers a lot. And I'm totally opposed to any sort of factionalism as we see today. But those two competing ideas that around the future of South Africa, how did one come to dominate the other? That's all I'm asking you. You you see there'd be some levels of debate at the level of the ANC subcommittees. And I think if there's one thing, and I can't talk about how the NEC subcommittees work at the moment, 
But in terms of robust debate, they were plentiful at that particular point in time. And I suppose, and, and I'll be oversimplifying it, so you should bring in some other people on this one. And I would suggest that you bring in, um, well, Michael Sachs is a bit younger. But I think even someone, sorry, that is related to me, but Jabu Moleketi or so on, who was part of the Economic Transformation Committee at the time and part of the debates along with Trevor and them. But I would say that I think we were quite preoccupied with looking at how we'd be able to free up resources that we perceived as sustainable so maybe didn't push the Keynesian Merck uh, thrust that far, but we felt let's take this particular route because we didn't want, as we saw it then, to have a burden on future generations paying the debt incurred by the then uh, previous and new generations. So, yeah, so I'm giving you an oversimplistic uh, response to that. I remember around 2003-2004, debates with Trevor Manuel, who was then the Minister of Finance, particularly on that point. So I was uh, recently in civil society. We were part of the Basic Income Grant mm -hmm. um, Coalition. And one of the things that we were arguing for, Kasatu had just started working with civil society at that point in time, which is another interesting dynamic. But we were particularly arguing around the increasing levels of poverty. As I was speaking to now passed on Dr. Zola Skoyo, who was your successor, mm -hmm. um, I was asking about social security and why it seemed to evoke a negative response amongst people in the former liberation movement. And he looked at me and said, when we were fighting for freedom, we saw that our children would come in and be professionals. They would be doctors and lawyers. And they would not be grant recipients. I've always kept that in mind. But I think my question is really going back to what Trevor was saying about indebtedness of future generations. There's always a debate around that. And, and I think as people who were nurturing and, and looking after the state, that was definitely an important consideration. But what about obligations to people in the here and now for families who are not able to make ends meet, who, who feel the brunt of poverty and who formerly sort of felt the brunt of, of, of a really brutal apartheid. How do you weigh up the needs of, of people to live a decent life now with the well-being of future generations who themselves might not be able to achieve that, that sort of future aim given the, the current um, obstacles to dignity? You know, I don't think that it should ever be interpreted that it was overlooking the year now by our approach that at the time said we didn't we don't want indebtedness of future generations and i'll give you an example of why it shouldn't be interpreted as that so one and i'll come to that but there is a second point you know, and you were aware as well, in terms of current debates within the movement and beyond, that there's a very narrow way in which the social safety net is viewed. So a grant is seen as creating dependency that takes away agency from people. And I think it's because there's a deep lack of understanding of the importance of 
to have a direct cash transfer that can make a difference. And it's because people look at the negatives instead of seeing the overall success and the overall impact. Because after all, it is the extension and expansion of social security grants and the social safety net that it actually almost buffered the extent of inequality in South African society, you know, so that some gets overlooked. And, and, and I'll come back to why. But when we felt uh, initially that we needed to transform the social security system as a whole, because it was one that was clearly racially focused, and it was everything from pensions to foster care grants to uh, what was then uh, um, state maintenance grant, which we changed into the child support grant. And I'll come to the specific. And, and there's a whole number of grants, uh, emergency, disaster relief, uh, disability, etc., etc. And I think people forget that in 1994, if I can use racial terms just to explain it, African pensioners only got a pension every second month. They never had monthly pensions. There was the stratification of the amounts for the various race groups, as we were aware. And I recall uh, when I was minister, Deputy Minister of Welfare, I actually in a public meeting said, I said, it's not as though the price of bread differentiates according to the race. You get the same grant, you get a particular grant, but, uh, you know, commodities and that, the cost of it is something else. And I am just had to bring it down to that level. And we said, we've got to expand this. But because there were concerns around, as I said, a self-imposed austerity, how do we do it within the basket we have? And we expanded the basket a little bit. And you'd recalled or may have heard about the Francie Lunt report that we commissioned to look particularly at the state maintenance grant and at how it could become and be changed into a child support grant itself. And we didn't see the grant, the cash transfer, as the only component in the basket of services. It was to be linked with a whole number. It had to become a basket of services, as I said. So there had to be a link between the cash transfer, Department of Health, Department of Education, a link uh, um, to the Department of Public Works, in spite of the challenges that may have been there, link to the Department of Economic Development, DTI and others, because we felt that whilst kids were on the ground, you had to target, essentially it was women, you know. So we, at the same time in welfare, had a pilot that we had that was called a war on poverty. So this was part of a broader package. So unlike what the perception was out there that we were non-uncaring, we actually had a package of services, but where there was a breakdown is the rollout was fastest with the transition, the expansion of the social security grants than, you know, the 
take up and bringing in Department of Public Works, bringing in uh, DTI and the Economic Affairs Department, because we said to them, you need to look and, and hence the whole debate that was there around the two economies, the theory of the two economies that got lost and many tried to kill it because we felt we needed to bring this together. And needless to say, we weren't geared to ensure the integration to the degree required. So you had certain programs with public works. And I mean, we had the demographers involved in this. There was incredible work done. Some of it, unfortunately, did not continue because, you know, when you change your executive, you sometimes have an element of discontinuity around it. So I wouldn't call it overlooking the year and now. It was just that with the new democracy, you must remember we brought 11 different administrations together to bring them into one. Capacities were different. Budgets were different. You had to change many things. And there wasn't quite the ability to lead the kind of change required by a developmental and capable state. And I'm quite confident that it was there. Where there was a lot of opposition, and that was a debate that was never really fully won, was around the basic income grant. But I think right now, there is a different thinking, because ironically, you know, it's even coming from, you know, the private sector and others are sort of talking out and saying, you know, with the new world of work, we've got to review how we see uh, the world of work. You're not going to employ the same numbers of people. So whilst we're looking and encouraging, and, and South Africa and Africa is not there yet, and there are high levels of inequality, and we've got to be very creative about how we see the fourth industrial revolution and its positive impacts on economic development. But we'll also have to see how do we redress this issue of high levels of youth unemployment. So you've got to have some income grant, whilst there's also a capacity building initiative that accompanies that and allowing people to be productive in different ways, you know. And it's a big debate. It's an exciting debate. But you need thinking that's able to look at this bigger picture and understand the importance of uh, expanding the social safety net. And, and also reviewing the way in which we look at uh, a basic income grant. But it also requires greater efficacy within the public service because you need a much stronger public service and public sector. And I think COVID has also shown that to us, both in developed and developing countries. As you were talking about the problems of what we now call joined up governance, yeah. I think that's what Tony Blair called it. Yeah, I didn't really like the Tony Blair, Blair approach, but yes, <laughs> yeah. uh, you're right. That's joined up government. Yeah. And then when Isabel was talking, I just had to explain that everyone who comes to this podcast gets asked about the basic income grant. <laughs> and um, what you're saying is so correct. We should have this false binary between consumption exactly. and production or jobs. Mm. These things must work together. Exactly. And these are not competing ideas. Now, because I just want to ask you, Minister of Public Service and Administration for nine years between 1999 and 1999, right. 2008. Fast forward to today, we've seen a, what South Africans perceive as a collapse of the public service, the capacity to deliver what you call a capable state. 
it was a truly historic moment. We are trying to, as you say, bring these 11 administrations together. What South Africans don't understand is what did you do right, what did you do wrong? What South Africans can't understand is why on the first time you come into democracy, you close the teacher colleges, you close the nursing colleges, and you downsized 200,000 employees, according to a paper by Miriam Altman and Ibrahim Kahil Hassan. So they call your period when you're in the stabilizing phase in the public service. And then from 2004 to 2008, we started employing more people. Maybe you can just summarize the huge challenges in terms of restructuring the public service at the time and what you guys were trying to achieve and what you actually did. So Duma, you know, I don't like this thing of, well, you weren't in that position then. We were one government. It's one cabinet. I see too much of that at the moment of, oh, no, it wasn't me. I inherited that or... I'm in this portfolio and not that. I mean, I heard one minister, when asked a question, say, no, no, you must ask me questions about this part of my portfolio, not another part. And that's not how government work. A capable state is where you work as a collective. This issue that you raised around joined up government, the fact that we're not federations and different departments, because the big problem precisely is when you become silos, and I think that is what happened, especially over more recent years, and I call it the aberration. So coming back to that, I don't know if it was an error necessarily that there was a need to review the composition of the public service. So maybe I should talk about what wasn't take to, taken to its full conclusion. So firstly, you had 11 public services, quite right, I had to reach out to a much larger population base because look uh, what was South African public service or the white administration was targeted to a particular number uh, section of the population. This had to open up and all. But I think the truth be told that when you bring together 11 administrations. There is a need to rationalize. You don't need a replication of all. And and this was the intention, was rationalization. There was the provision of voluntary severance packages. Now, emphasis on voluntary. So no one was forced to leave the public service. And uh, at that particular point in time, I mean, there was also a view, as is the case now, I, I mean, we are aware of, that the public service wage bill was too high. There was a need for resources to go into other areas. So the intention was originally to rationalize in a manner that would get rid of the deadwood. Now, inevitably, um, and and that was a challenge with the first VSP that was there. There wasn't a clause that allowed for the directors general and executive when working together to actually say to Duma when he applies for a VSP that no Duma, you can't get it because we need your skill. So you had an outflux or outflow of people, some of whom were required within the public service. You know, if you go back and, and look at the second VSP, that was corrected. We, we allowed for a veto. 
Now, it wasn't necessarily fully implemented, you know, because if your management, middle and senior management are not able to fully effect this, you also have challenges. So I think we saw a challenge there. The closing of colleges and all, I think the expectation was that the universities would be able to absorb that to a large extent because Cabinet and both uh, Minister Sibusisu Bengo and Minister Kader Asmal are not people who are run of the mill Thatcherite type thinking. I mean, it was also looking creatively at how we use the broader resources in a better way. Now, where the disconnect was is you have the constitution, you have you have far-reaching policies that looks in a very different way at the manner in which we should run this country in order to ensure greater inclusivity and overcoming inequality. But your public servants weren't all trained up to effect this. Neither were your universities quite ready to fill the gaps of the teachers' training colleges, of uh, dealing with uh, your uh, um, these colleges that were at Bara and the various hospitals and all that. And because there wasn't that ability to necessarily make that switch as fast as the policy and regulatory changes took place, this led to a problem. And I think this is what we are seeing today. I think the reversal of this, some of it is necessary, but we must be very careful about not being too mechanical about it and too narrow about it. Because then, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, we're going to suggest that those policies didn't take into account the purpose of uh, these uh, training colleges, the nursing training colleges and health, uh, I mean, education training colleges, that it didn't take into account why you had inspectors at school and why you had uh, your agricultural outreach workers. But it was because there was a different philosophical and policy approach that I think wasn't fully understood by the machinery that had to implement it, you know, and, and that's where there were limitations. One of the questions that I've been dying to ask you, specifically because of the honour of your recruitment into the Communist Party, I think you've kind of tempered that with your quote from Deng, but the incredibly high levels of inequality in South Africa, which we see exacerbating arguably the highest uh, inequality, both in terms of income, but more particularly what I'm interested in is, is wealth. So a lot of that accumulated wealth is generated from apartheid-era accumulation, so white wealth, which has been accumulated, and of course, uh, through clever um, estate designing and things like that, it loses, so to speak, uh, its colour. I'm interested as to whether or not you think that we need to look at ways of trying to harness that idle wealth to bring it back into available resources for the developmental state that we need. So both in terms of the crisis, um, how we fund our way out, the kind of shock demand, but more particularly as a longer term project, how we seek to dismantle that accumulation of wealth, um, which, which went before the 1994 state and has been expanding on itself 
almost without uh, any form of regulation or discipline? It's a complex question you're raising, you know. <laughs> a few responses on this. And again, I think it needs uh, quite a lot of consideration. In terms of we, I mean, if the three of us are in a room, we definitely say uh, we've got to look at how we draw on that idle wealth. How do we change that? How do we bring that into the economy in a manner that it can be utilized to overcome inequality and so on? But I think you must remember as well that that's got to underpin the kind of election policy platform that you come into government with. So it's not just something that you do in isolation. And... To a large degree, whether we like it or not, and I say this carefully, probably that's part of the original Freedom Charter project, and it's part of a more socialist project as well. You've, you've seen in recent times too much fracturing that hasn't really enabled thinking that says, how do we make this happen? The issue that Duma raises, he talks about factions at a particular point, and I wouldn't call it faction, I would call it platforms or different thinking. Right now, regrettably, you don't have platforms, you have factions. And that actually counters the ability to deal with that kind of economic project. That's required. So I want to come to that. You know, the one thing that comes to mind, which is part of our discussion, was when Deng spoke about the fact that poverty is not socialism. You know, he makes that particular point. And you're not making that point. And so I'm actually saying it in support of the point you're making. And he makes a further point that it's a very difficult point to make. So I'm going to go to his quote directly so that nobody attributes it to me, you know. He says, poverty is not socialism. To be rich is glorious, close quotes. And he raises that at a point when he also says, and, and I need to just look because you made me really go and do some reading last night again, you know, when I went to Ding, when he spoke about the emphasis to seek truth from facts. And he said, in, and I quote him, he said, in the end, convincing those who do not believe in socialism will depend on our own nation's development. If we can reach a comfortable standard of living by the end of the century, then we will wake them up a bit. And in the next century, when we as a socialist country from the middle ranks of developed nations that will help convince them most of these people will genuinely see that they were mistaken, close quotes. So I bring that in because it's an interesting point where Deng actually said he was part of those who said, you know, we've got to bring Chinese people out of poverty. And if we look at the billions that were brought out of poverty, it's because they looked at uh, socialism with a mark, uh, what, what did they say, with capitalism, capitalist characteristics. So I'm going to your point in trying to, in a very inelegant way, close the loop by saying we've got to look at how we deal with that particular issue, but we also need 
to develop a very large black middle class, you know. But when whilst doing that, we've got to bring the majority of South Africans out of poverty as well. And how are we going to do that is the big question. So it goes to what I would argue we almost need both policies and plans as we've seen implemented by the Chinese Communist Party. But we've got to stick with that plan irrespective of who is in government at a particular point in time. So I'm not really answering it fully, but I hope to a degree I'm triggering thinking that let's look at this particular model, but let's take it forward in a manner where a collective is committed to it. But you need people with capability to do that. In 1994, and I'm going to just take this back, 94 and even the two subsequent administrators, we very deliberately looked at who we brought into management positions. Because with the first uh, government, we said we needed policy change. And we needed people who had that understanding. So you had lateral entrants coming from universities and other places, people who had the experience. 1999, we said maybe we need a bit of a gear change. And I'm not talking about gear in the way (laughs) that's required. And in that change, we needed to bring people in who could see through the implementation And the intention at no point was to bring people in because we are narrowly saying it must be Duma in the post. It was Duma because of the skill set that he brought to bear and what the needs were at that particular point in time. And it goes back to this particular point uh, when I, I looked at this last night again, where he said, we mustn't fear to adopt advanced management methods applied in capitalist countries. The very essence of socialism is the liberation and development of the productive system. Uh, socialism and market economy are not incompatible. Now, these aren't easy things that he put out there. But I think I was trying to point to this thing of the kind of contradictions that we confronted. And I don't think that it was the 94-2009 period that led to what became a meltdown. We looked at building strong institutions. We looked at the building a strong human resource capacity. What we didn't finish was having a very solid skills database. So knowing what the skills are across the public service. And we saw a bit of an erosion of institutions, some capable people moving out. But we should also not undermine or, you know, ignore the fact that there are good people in the public service as well. But I think the whole issue of, and I'm going to make two broad statements, the whole political management interface is a bit of a challenge. But the second issue as well is that we've never been able to fully transform from a movement into a party. And when you in government, and this is something that Professor Adedeji Adebayo has also said, he said one of the big challenges of Africa is that liberation movements have never been able to fully 
transform into effective parties. And that may lead to some of the governance challenges. Thank you so much. Um, as we move towards closing the session, I, I found it very fascinating that you've referred to Deng repeatedly. I've been on study tours of China, two study tours of China over the past three years, and it's actually fascinating. And what I've learned from them is that there wasn't one model. There was an overarching obsession with economic development, but they chopped and changed their policy throughout the last 40 years. They started with something and if it doesn't work, they move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. So they are what we call in South Africa an agile state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, no, just to talk about the current situation. So let's summarize where we are as a country. Between 1994 and 2019, GDP per capita is up 28%. Whichever way you slice it, that is not really good enough because mm. China is up 760% over the same period. And we had this lost decade in terms of economic development, which you allude to. So now we're entering what I call the fourth phase of our post-apartheid history, this corona crisis. So there's two elements of it. The collapse of the economy this year, and um, by the end of this year, we'll probably be 15% higher than we were in 1994. And as we continue over the next two years, we're going to be barely richer than we were in 1994. I think South Africans are correct to be on the edge. Most South Africans are on the edge now. What should we be doing in this moment? And I've been speaking to a lot of South Africans. Um, I was in speaking to the National Union of Mine Workers and um, National Executive this week. And what I find um, across the board, people are not focusing on the immediate challenge facing our society. They bring in other issues that existed previous to the corona crisis that we're currently facing. So what can we do in the current moment to get out of this situation and chart a new path for this country? You know, Duma, I wish there was an easy answer. Um, and I believe uh, right now, out of need, like uh, the president has this huge uh, economic recovery program. The sad thing of that, what I've looked at, and I've looked at it in passing, I must confess, so I haven't drilled down deeply. You know, you need the long-term vision, so you can't just be short-termist to get out of a problem like this. Um, and in looking at the long-term vision, you need to look at, so what do we do immediately? And for the immediate, we need to be audacious. And I don't think there's sufficient, uh, and it's a term that Mbeki used, there's not sufficient audacity in this current uh, policy that's on the table. And it needs everyone to sit down and say we're going to do it. It's, it's a national effort. So private sector has got to make available some of the resources that it's sitting on. You talk about ideal, ideal, ideal wealth, wealth yeah. in a broad sense. But we also know there's a lot of liquid capital at the moment. And, you know, private sector is sitting on it because there's no confidence in what's going to happen next. And I think this needs to be overcome. And for that, you need to be bold. So... It's, it, it's, it's not about another commission or another panel of inquiry and all, because this has led to creating uh, uh, different layers. 
there's too many layers, too many structures that nobody knows what they're doing. And as we're dealing with uh, the some of the immediate challenges, people assume that it's all about corruption. You know what we really need is we need inclusive economic growth. And when I say inclusive, it takes into account the social aspects, the economic aspects and all that. And in that way, you will deal with corruption through the controls you put in place, not celebrity commissions, you know, that uh, creates challenges. And I'm not trying to undermine what's happening, but it's, it, it, it's also undermined the trust of the ordinary South African in the public sector. So everyone is in a sense or at the moment of total dejection and depression. And what we need is we need some shining examples coming through, which requires this audacity and determination to work and the readiness to sometimes agree to disagree with Isabel and Duma and say, listen, guys, it's not going to take us anywhere. And say, we're going to do this and we're going to make it happen. And these are the quick wins. And let's look at what can be done in the longer term. So I do serve, for example, on the board of uh, Standard Bank. And I speak here in my individual capacity, not as a non-executive. And I would say immediately, you know, if we look at... Uh, so what contribution towards transformation? We must also look at what are the impediments there. So transforming, if you look at uh, the banking sector, you look at risk and all, it's largely white, untransformed, and this needs to be changed. It needs to be inclusive. But there's a second, um, and, and I'm talking about boards as well, and, and we do see the change in the boardrooms more diversity, but not enough. We need to push harder. But there's a second point is how do you have access to resources? So the banking sector itself is hamstrung by the regulatory environment. And it's not just national, it's Basel. So there's a group of people who sit in Basel and decide on the regulatory environment that governs banks. And what does it do? It excludes the informal sector completely. So for us, we must actually say to our own regulators, when you go into those rooms, go in there and actually bring the voice of the second economy from South Africa into that room. Because this is what leads to banks being hung strung to provide equity to startups. And you know, equity is really the one instrument that could help grow that part of the economy and so on. But you, so I'm saying, I'm just giving one example. So just getting back to it, we need the likes of you audacious people who are going to be able to bell the cat and say things need to be done. And we stop seeing ourselves as being part of a faction that if I raise that, I'd be seen as not supporting so-and-so. And God damn it, we're not in the moment of supporting so-and-so. We need to support the kid that's out there in Kwamashu, the elderly woman that's in the far parts of Limpopo. We must see our role on this African continent where we can link to the woman in Djibouti or in the Ivory Coast and stop navel-gazing and looking at what it means to me and my popularity stakes today. 
Geraldine, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think that your leadership just comes through on every level and your vision. So thank you so much for contributing to your time. And I'm not an enemy of Deng and he's not an enemy <laughs> of mine. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure not. <laughs> yeah, okay. Thank you so much, Geraldine. It's such an honor to have you here. And I hope we can talk about the audacious things that we have to do as a country outside of this podcast. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.